sermon from Bishop Polk or singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Civil War soldiers rarely felt themselves far from God. But in the thousands of books written about the war, the Almighty makes relatively few appearances. Where did he go? We'll ask Stephen Woodworth, author of While God is Marching On, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort. As I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories, guaranteed to leave you spellbound, while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine. Every Wednesday, beginning at 4 p.m., right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University. Talking today with Stephen Woodworth. Stephen, we've been talking uh, thus far about some of the great generals of the war and their reputations, the battles they engaged in, which are subjects that have been written about at enormous length. Uh, I'm sure you have shelves and shelves of books on uh, Grant, Lee, Sherman, uh, their their battles, and so forth. Yeah. One subject that is not frequently written about in much detail are the religious beliefs of Civil War soldiers, which you addressed in your book, While God is Marching on uh, the, the Civil War, the Religious Lives of Civil War Soldiers. And I think that is an absolutely fascinating topic that uh, has been uh, largely underemphasized. What can you tell us about the, the, the lives, the religious lives of these the men who fought in this war? Well, first of all, uh, America in the mid-19th century was in some ways much more openly religious Christian than it is today. Uh, society today is relatively secularized. It, it raised no eyebrows when, during the course of the Civil War, Davis and the Confederacy and Lincoln in the North issued various proclamations calling on for days not only of national thanksgiving, but national humiliation and fasting and prayer, uh, calling on their fellow Americans to uh, pray. Uh, I know President Bush's recent uh, inaugural address 
was criticized by some as being too religious. And yet, uh, by comparison, it was a, n- not nearly as religious, say, as Lincoln's, Lincoln's second inaugural address. So uh, the society was more attuned to that. Now, that's a long way from saying that everybody was a Christian uh, or, or would have defined himself as a Christian, or the majority of society or soldiers would have defined themselves as a Christian. I think that term confuses a lot of people. What if, you know, people say, well, they're, they're not Christians. What are they, Hindus or something? Well, they defined a Christian, and the soldiers would write this way in their letters. A Christian was someone who had uh, committed himself to Christ uh, and was living in a way that was befitting to that and uh, therefore had an assurance uh, that his sins were forgiven. And not, not all the soldiers certainly would have said that. I think less than half would have, would have claimed that, that they were Christians in that sense. There were many others, however, who generally would have accepted uh, that Christianity was truth, and that there was a God and he created the world and the Bible was his word. However, they would not have described themselves as Christians. So this is an era when this Protestant uh, Christianity was the dominant belief system of most Americans. Uh, Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Very dominant. In fact, I came across one soldier who served in the Irish Brigade, and he claimed that Protestants outnumbered Catholics in the Irish Brigade. I'm not sure if I believe that or not, but that's how dominant it was. Now, in my own study, when I, when I teach uh, U.S. history survey courses, I find myself talking about the religion of Americans uh, from the, the first settlement, especially the New England colonies, uh, because it just seems so fundamental to, to the worldview that, that people had in those eras. And yet it does not appear uh, in many books about the Civil War, many history books in general. Uh, why is that? Why, are, why do historians not... Uh, discuss this not not in terms of saying it's correct or not that people had such beliefs, but simply as historical fact whether they believed certain ways. Right. Well, that's a good question, and in a way, it leads us into speculating about people's motives, which is always shaky ground. I think <clears throat> historians make decisions all the time when when we tell the stories of history, we make decisions about what affects those stories, what motivated so and so to do this or that, and I think we we make those decisions inevitably based on our own view of the world to some degree. So if, if our view of the world is that a particular type of belief is unimportant because not true, uh, it's very easy to uh, dismiss it as not important to the story. I think many historians, well, these are outmoded beliefs, therefore they don't affect the way the story comes out, and so they pass over them and they don't include it in the story. I think that's a mistake from several angles. Historians are, are subject to fads, uh, I would say, almost as much as my uh, my teenage daughter is, mm-hmm. in terms of the way they interpret the past. Uh, uh, economic determinism was very big when I was in graduate school, and you don't hear nearly as much of it today. Which is a good thing. Uh, which, which I would agree. To. I, I, I don't hold much for many determinisms, but certainly the idea that all decisions in life are determined primarily by economics doesn't square much with my own experience. But now I, when I say that, I'm doing what you just talked about, which is applying my own experience to the past. Uh, is how, how can we get out of that trap if, if all historians tend to see things in the past, someone who, who is a Marxist and is going to interpret the past as a Marxist, 
someone who has a strong religious faith is going to be keenly aware of, of historic forebears who had the same faith. Uh, someone who is a postmodernist is going to look for... Uh, I have no idea what he's going to look for, actually. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't either. Uh, pro- and, and, and not neither look for nor care. Well, actually, we'll look for his own political views and attempt to, yeah. to uh, impose them, but that's another story. How do we get out of that trap, though, then? How do we write good history that's not burdened by our own views? Well, I think I have a two-part answer to that. First, yes. I think that as individual historians, we should, and, and many do attempt and do their best to try to overcome that, to try to be, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to claim that we can be totally objective historians, but honest historians. We have opinions, but we want to be honest. And so um, I don't want to claim in, in religious world that, that all or even most of the Civil War soldiers were, uh, were devout Christians. I, I don't believe that's true. I certainly don't want to claim that uh, the armies were devoid of uh, uh, you know, drinking, wenching, and gambling. And for one thing, I get laughed at, and of course it's not true. So we can try to be uh, honest and balanced and fair. I think the second part of my answer is, though, that we have to realize that um, we, we can never completely rise beyond our biases. Uh, it, I think it would be a mistake and it would be naive if we were to claim. In fact, my, my um, red flags go up right away when I read a historian claiming that he is devoid of all bias. I just don't believe that that's completely possible. But I think the solution to that is if not all historians are writing from the same position of, of potential bias. If, if 95% of the historians in, uh, in the academic profession hold to the same worldview and thus write from the same perspective, I think that that would impoverish, and maybe does impoverish, uh, the historical world. Uh, I, th- I, I think that that's true. The marketplace of ideas is, is one way to... Uh, winnow out some some obvious biases, but when everyone in the marketplace shares the same views, you don't get that effect taking place. Exactly, uh, that can be an issue. Well, I I was very much enjoyed the uh, the book on the Civil War uh, on the religious lives of Civil War soldiers, and I learned some interesting things. I was struck by your uh, finding that the religious revivals that most people associate with the Southern armies were much more universal, that they affected both sides. Yes, that's one of the more controversial findings, uh, I, I think, that, that I came across and is hotly disputed by some people, uh, generally those with a lost cause axe to grind. I, I believe that our impression that the revivals were solely a southern phenomenon came out of the lost cause. It's, the, it's part of the religious aspect of the lost cause. As I imagine most of our listeners are aware, that the lost cause is the, the view that came out after the Civil War that even though the South, the Confederacy, lost the war, uh, nonetheless it was right. And there had always been this assumption that a war, a battle, was an appeal to heaven and that God would cause the side that was right to win. And then when Southerners lost, many of them did express in their letters some dissolution. How could God let us win? How, or, excuse me, how could God let us lose? We were so right. We were so just and righteous. And so during the decades after the Civil War, there is a very conscious and determined effort, and maybe even a sub, sort of subconscious, uh, thoughtless effort, to show that even though we lost, we were righteous, we were holy, we were the good guys. And that takes various forms. It's the sort of semi-deification of Robert E. Lee. But another form that it takes is in the claim that southern armies were Christian armies. 
and you have books like uh, Christ in the Camp and uh, Narrative of the Great Revival by Bennett. And I'm not here to say, certainly, that the things they wrote in those books are false. I generally think they were telling the truth as best they could. But what is overlooked is that there was a great revival in the uh, northern armies. Now, it may not have looked like the revival in the southern armies. Northern culture and southern culture are, are different. But there was certainly a great deal of interest in Christianity, many people attending religious meetings, professing religious conversions, holding prayer meetings, and so forth, in the northern armies, as in the southern. So, now, religion is obviously a very personal thing, and it affected these soldiers on an individual level. Uh, but you talk early in your book about how this also had an effect on a national level. The, the various denominations uh, were really the first national institutions to divide along regional lines. Uh, yes. Could you talk about that? Well, Christianity being what it is, if taken seriously, is going to have a decisive impact on, on every aspect of an individual's life, including his political life, and including what he does about things in society. And so in the early 19th century, as many northern Christians came to feel that slavery was not moral, therefore it was their Christian duty to fight slavery politically, to oppose it every chance they got, at least not to be in any way guilty themselves, not to have the guilt of slavery on their hands. This led to conflict with the uh, southern, uh, southern halves of their denomination. The first split came in 1843, when uh, a splinter group split off of the Methodist Church. They were called the Wesleyan Methodists. The Methodist bishops were trying to squelch the anti-slavery uh, zeal of the Wesleyan Methodists, that, that arm of the Wesleyan Church, and uh, the Wesleyan Methodists uh, kind of looked at their Bibles and said, well, uh, come to think of it, not only is slavery wrong, we think bishops are wrong too. And so they went their way and, and split off. And then the following year, the Methodist Church itself split in 1844 between what came to be called the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. And the, uh, the reason for the split was a bishop, a southern, who owned slaves. And northern delegates to the national uh, conference said that uh, we, we won't have a bishop who owns slaves. Now, he, he claimed they weren't his, they were his wife's, isn't that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't think the Northern delegates him. were particularly convinced by that. <laughs> and, and so they split. And then the, the Baptists split the following year. The Presbyterians, as always, had a more complicated course that they took. But they, they, they had divided earlier on doctrinal lines. Exactly. But those eventually came in eventually they, the slavery became a divisive issue for them as well. Exactly, and the division over slavery uh, tended to flow along the lines of the previous doctrinal divide. So in this, in, in a, a subject that, that people took very seriously, their inability to see each other's view as it affected slavery leads to the, the these these denominations dividing, uh, taking sides north against south, as early as the 1840s, it, it really, to me, that seems one of the, the more important developments, and again, leads back to my initial observation to you, that the that historians, as a, a general rule, it seems to me, don't address the subject often enough or in enough, with enough seriousness. Right. For people who who take it seriously as many Americans did at that time, 
it's the most important thing. And here's the most important part of their life, the, the determinative part of their life, uh, in which terms they, they define their whole identity. And, and this is saying that those other people are wrong about this issue. It's a tremendously powerful divide. And I think it is often overlooked, or not, not always, but often is not given the importance that I think it really deserves, that, that strong division that they had there. Well, certain, certainly the uh, historians of the Puritans uh, focus a great deal on the, the spiritual lives of their subjects, people they're writing about. But after that, it seems to fade out of the picture until, uh, uh, well, it never really assumes the same prominence as it does in that era. Let, let me ask you another question about this book. And this is something that struck me as I was reading it. You address in great detail the lives of Christian soldiers, uh, and you define, as you've done earlier here, uh, Christians, then you omit groups that you point out statistically insignificant, uh, Hindu, Zoroastrians, Druids perhaps, uh, but you also omit Catholics in your discussion, and that, that did strike me as interesting because certainly in units like the Irish Brigade and Irish or German regiments in the North, you would have had a substantial number of, of Catholics. Uh, how, how did you come to that decision? Well, there were many Catholics uh, in the Union armies, and uh, while they're not absolutely absent from my book, they are largely absent. Um, it's first, Well, first of all, I didn't mean my book to be the final book about the religious world of Civil War soldiers, the, the book that was going to uh, you know, exhaust the subject so that no one else could ever write on it. I doubt that that's possible, and certainly not at this stage, where we're only beginning to look at, at the soldier's religion and the significance of religion on that conflict. Uh, I, I saw this more as uh, not quite, but almost a first book on the subject that would open the way. There's much more to be done, and a study of Catholics is certainly part of it, a big part of it. But I did take an approach with this book that was a little at odds with what I think some people in my profession do. That is, I approached it from the center out, and I looked at the center most, and I looked at the periphery of belief less. Now, I, I find that many people in my profession, many professional historians, will look at the periphery. They'll look at the exceptional, offbeat, weird, and I don't mean to say the Catholics are exceptional, weird, or offbeat, but I'm talking now about people in my profession who will go, not, you know, not to what is a minority, mainstream but minority view like Roman Catholicism, but to really beyond that, to things that are just really out of the way. The, the exception rather than the norm. Exactly. And by covering all of the exceptional cases, feel like they've been comprehensive when I feel they've neglected the center. It, it's, it is an interesting issue. If, if you have, uh, say, ten different political parties and you write equally on each one, but one of those parties commanded 60% of the vote and the other nine were splinter groups, exactly. giving each one equal space is not really a fair picture. Right. Uh, but that is often, I think, the kind of picture we get in, in the scholarly history world. Again, not always, but sometimes. Now, the counter-argument, of course, would be that, that if you cover only that one, if you were to write on, on Union soldiers and omit black soldiers because they were a minority, uh, other scholars would say, well, that's not a legitimate distinction to, to only write about white soldiers uh, as soldiers. So, so I'd, I'd suggest there's a counter-thought there. Well, perhaps... Uh, it's it's um it's difficult to answer, but I think there there's something legitimate to be said there for talking about the center. There's always more to be said though. Well, there is. We're we're gonna take another break. This is a fascinating conversation with Stephen Woodworth here on Civil War Talk Radio.